1 Corinthians chapter 16. We're reading from the message and we're only reading excerpts. You can follow along on the wall. 1 Corinthians 16. Friends, let me go over the message with you one final time, the message that I proclaimed and that you made your own. The first thing that I did, implied there, is when I was with you. The first thing I did was place before you what was placed so emphatically before me, that the Messiah died for our sins exactly as Scripture tells it, that he was buried that he was raised from death on the third day, again, exactly as Scripture says, that he presented himself alive to Peter, then to his closest followers, and later to more than 500 of his followers all at the same time, most of them still around, although a few have since died, and that he spent time with James and the rest of those he commissioned to represent him And he finally presented himself alive to me. Let me tell you something wonderful, a mystery I'll probably never fully understand. We're not all going to die, but we are all going to be changed. You hear a blast to end all blasts from a trumpet, and in the time that that you look up and blink your eyes, it's over. On signal from that trumpet from heaven, the dead will be up and out of their graves beyond the reach of death, never to die again. At the same moment and in the same way, we'll all be changed. In the resurrection scheme of things, this has to happen. Everything perishable taken off the shelves and replaced by the imperishable. The mortal replaced by the immortal. Then the saying will come true, death Swallowed by triumphant life. Who got the last word, O death? O death, who's afraid of you now? It was sin that made death so frightening, and law code guilt that gave sin its leverage, its destructive power. But now, in a single victorious stroke of life, all three sin, guilt, death are gone. The gift of our Master, Jesus Christ. Thank God. Say that with me. Thank God. Let me read that paragraph again. It was sin that made death so frightening and law code guilt that gave sin its leverage, its destructive power. But now in a single victorious stroke of life, all three, sin, guilt, death, are gone. The gift of our Master, Jesus Christ. So with all this going for us, my dear, dear friends, stand your ground and don't hold back. Throw yourselves into the work of the Master, confident that nothing you do for Him is a waste of time or effort. Each holy day, each holiday at NRCC, we do the same thing. We rehearse some part of our story. The telling and the retelling and the re-retelling of our story and how we came to be here today, how our God has intersected history. We do it at Christmas, we do it at Easter. And this storytelling component of our communal lives together serves to root us 
It serves to help us know our place in history, where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. How we will live today and how we will live tomorrow is determined by how God has intersected history yesterday. Knowing our story, rehearsing our story, immersing ourselves in our story points us to a path of living that makes our lives worthy of the precious gift of breath that we've been given. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 tells our story. It's known as Paul's resurrection chapter. We only read a section of it, and it would be a good use of your time tonight before you fall asleep to read it in its entirety. It would be a good use of your holy day. Like we are doing today, Paul was in that chapter rehearsing our story for the people of Corinth. He was telling it to them, rooting them in their place in history, helping them know who they were and how they were connected to the past and where they would be going tomorrow and how they would live a life that would be rich in its worthiness. This is our story, Paul says. Just a few years ago, he said, Jesus in Jerusalem walked the earth with us. And he lived. And he died. And he was buried in a grave. And after three days, his body was raised from death. And Peter saw him. And James saw him. And many of his followers saw him. In fact, at one time, 500 of his followers saw him. And finally, I stand in personal testimony because I, I also saw him. On the road to Damascus, I saw him. Now he goes on and he says in the part that we didn't read, and it's fitting that I was the last to see him because I persecuted Jesus and I persecuted his body. Now, he says, we all saw him. But it's a funny thing, this seeing Jesus after the resurrection, because it's not the kind of seeing that was recorded previously. Up until the point of Jesus' death and resurrection in our story, his seeing him was relatively normative. But seeing him after his death took on some kind of different characteristic. Those who were recording our story for us were people who were trying to grapple with some kind of way of explaining the unexplainable. They were trying to find a language to help them catch up with an experience that was in many ways beyond language. They were struggling to find words to report a story born of such unfamiliarity that there wasn't vocabulary for talking about it. Their accounts strain language. Their accounts struggle to find words, grapple. For example, on the road to Emmaus, right after Jesus was raised from the dead, the disciples walked with him and talked with him for hours, and they saw him. Flesh and blood has, as he had always been, but somehow they didn't recognize him. Some kind of different seeing is going on. They didn't finally recognize him until they were eating together. His followers had a fish breakfast with him on the beach after he was resurrected from the dead. And they knew it was him, but at the same time, they did not know if it was him. They're straining to say, is 
this Jesus is this, he's flesh and blood, he is body, but is he flesh and blood, and is he body? Jesus meets with his followers to show them his wounds, and in a moment he is present, as any flesh and blood body is present. But mysteriously, he is also in a moment absent, and they struggle to explain presence and absence. A body like our bodies, but a body not quite like our bodies. The experience of him leaves them floundering for words. He takes nature as we have known it and turns it on its head. The rules of how things function and operate get turned askew. And his words do the same. His values and priorities, the things that he talks about, are just as skewed after his resurrection. For example, he tells his followers, I have now had victory over death, and I share with you, and I give you that same authority, and I have that same power to join me in this victory over death. And then after giving them the power over the grave and giving them the power over death, he turns and says, and by the way, Peter, your future will involve being tied up and killed. And so there is this sense that Jesus is one way and Jesus is in another way. And the accounts of those who record our story are struggling to deal with the strangeness of these events. It's an account that is filled with wonder, an account that is filled with overwhelming change, an account that strains in its efforts to explain what's going on. Jesus radically altered reality as we understood it. Jesus has altered typical storytelling and turned it on its head. Boundaries that once safely contained reality for us have been breached. And now our language is limiting. We don't know what to do outside the breach. Storytelling has become for us problematic. It's a strange series of reality-altering events, and this is our story. Now, Paul acknowledges how strange this story is, how crazy, in fact, it is. He says, this story, it makes us a laughingstock. This story makes us fools. We seem, when we tell this story, to be unwise. We seem to be foolish. We seem to be weak. But this is what happened. This is what happened. Jesus died. Jesus was buried Jesus was raised, and we saw him. I barely know how to recount this story to you, he says. I don't know how to tell it to you. I don't know what it was when I saw Jesus. The the light came. I was knocked off my donkey. I don't know how to explain to you, but though this is outside the limits of my experience, though this is outside the abilities of my language, this is our story. And this strange story has profoundly changed human history and has profoundly changed human reality for thousands of years now. Whereas death once had the last word, our story tells us that it's not the final word. Whereas death once held dominion, Jesus' defeat of it has changed everything, and our storytellers are straining to explain to us exactly how it changes everything, but somehow death and failure and weakness and shame and guilt, 
These things are no longer the final authority. And this is our story. Paul inserts a hymn that was contemporary to his time into this letter that he wrote to Corinth. And he says, quoting that hymn, Death swallowed up by triumphant life. Where is your sting, O death? Where is your victory, O death? Who got the last word now, O death? Who's afraid of you now? And he goes on in that section and he says, it's more just than the death of our bodies too. Jesus' resurrection has overcome the death fruit that is resident inside of our natures. In rising from the dead, Jesus has opened a door for us, a door from the perishable to the imperishable, a door from death in all of its manifestations into life in all of its manifestations. Changed into the likeness of Jesus, that is now available to us. Changed into the likeness of God. Changed into an entirely different nature, this is now available to us. And in one stroke of life, all the things that plague the human condition, sin and guilt and death and despair and hopelessness, all are defeated and replaced by an imperishable reality. One biblical author called it faith, hope, and love. That's what replaced death. Another said it was peace and joy and goodness and life, the very fruit of God's nature. This replaced death. And this is our story. On one Easter Sunday, not unlike this one, it was about 1,600 years ago, a man, his name was John Chrysostom, stood up to tell the story to his community He was a deeply devout spiritual leader, and so he stood up before his community in Constantinople, and he took Paul's mystery-laden words, and he retold the story for his generation, for his community. And I read his Easter sermon, and I wanted to quote two paragraphs from it. Listen to what he said. Christ is risen, and you, O death, are annihilated. Christ is risen, and the evil ones are cast down. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life is liberated. Christ is risen and the tomb is emptied of its dead. For Christ, having risen from the dead, is become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He destroys hell when he descended into it. Hell was in an uproar because it was done away with. It was in an uproar because it was mocked. It was in an uproar for it is destroyed It is in an uproar, for it is annihilated. It is in an uproar, for it is now made captive. This is what John Chrysostom said in A.D. 400. From the dead, my friends, he has come to life. And you too, he says, are to share in that rising. The death of your destiny, that death is destroyed. The death... Of your true nature in God, that death is destroyed. The death of your body, the death of your future, that death is destroyed. So 1,600 years ago, our people were telling this story, and we are retelling it again today. 
For in the telling and in the retelling and in the re-retelling, it moves. It moves from something that we were taught as children, a series of facts, a series of episodes that we memorized at festival times, and it comes from being that to being a compass-bearing in how we live. It comes to be more than a story. It comes to be a guidepost. It comes to be a compass-bearing. Our story tells us that we have victory over the worthless stories and worthless scripts that we tend to live out. Those stories that would minimize us, that would diminish us, that would debase us, the retelling of this story begins to percolate within us the reality that there is another story, a greater story, a more powerful story, and that, the magic of that story, begins to trump the lesser stories. We are no longer constrained to live out these lesser, these meaningless these empty, these soiled, these broken stories, the unworthy life narratives that we've been talking about in our current series, things we inherited from childhood, the worthless stories that we picked up from a broken world, the imprisoning stories that were sold to us as religious judgments, these things no longer limit the boundaries of our lives for we, our truest humanity, are set free. We are free our story tells us. And this story given us by our God, told to us by Paul, retold by John Chrysostom, told yet again across the globe today and here in our little community being told yet again. This is a story of hope. This is a story of promise. This is a story that tells us any soul damage you may have picked up along the way is not permanent. It tells you that any place where you are stuck in your mind, where you are stuck in your emotions, where you are stuck in your relationships, these things are not the final authority. The story that tells us that our self-doubts, those things that plague us, the fears that bedevil us, these things are destroyed as life comes flooding in in the aftermath of Jesus' resurrection. In rising from the dead, our God has come for you, has restored access to spiritual reality beyond being human, has reconnected us to a realm beyond flesh and blood, has reconnected us to wisdom that transcends our own wisdom, to reality beyond the limits of our own sight. The story avails us of the universe's highest aspirations, the fulfillment of your place in universal aspiration is now set before you. This is our story. Now, at the beginning of Lent, I asked you to read the red letters of Jesus through this season. And I hope you did. And if you didn't, you can always catch up. <laughs> And if you did that, if you read the words of Jesus over these six weeks, you may have hit upon something striking. Jesus had a very this-worldly orientation to his message. 
Very little of what he had to say was about life after death. Very little of what he had to say was about the transcendent realm. Going to heaven when we die was a very, very small part of Jesus' message. It's as though it was given such little attention because it didn't merit that because it was already so given. Like we don't talk much about polio anymore. We just give our kids a vaccination. We don't even think about polio. Jesus didn't even think about life after death. It's, that's taken care of. We, we've already established that's a done deal. Let's move on to what's important. And if you read particularly the three first accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the more pressing message, the thing that Jesus talked a lot about was that the kingdom of God is here right now. It is at hand. It is here among us today. God's life in the resurrection of Jesus has taken a new beginning, and that beginning is among us now. So rise up and take your place in this new world order. Jesus is risen. His followers have a job to do. So go forth. Establish God's new world where you live right now, today. Give birth to the life of heaven on this earth right now. This is the message of Jesus. Don't focus so much on leaving this earth and going to heaven someday. Don't think so much about departing this planet for the greater realm of paradise sometime in the future. No, instead, start the process of making the kingdom of heaven on this earth right here among us now. Colonize earth with the civilization of heaven. That's what Jesus was teaching us in the Lord's Prayer. He said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth right here, right now, just as it is in that transcendent realm of paradise. So draw upon the redeeming power of Jesus that was won for you at the cross and go forth with a mission. Your home is to be a colony of heaven on earth. The friendships in the workplace are to be colonies of heaven on earth. Your long-term friendships, lifelong friendships, colonies, outposts of heaven, your newly emerging friendships, transformed to be heaven-like, built on the values of the kingdom of God. Now in this Paul's resurrection chapter that we looked at this morning, he extols the wonders of resurrection. He inserts a hymn of hope that has become so used at funerals because it infuses with hope of death being defeated. Death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? Death, swallowed up in life, swallowed up in hope. Now, we could anticipate that he would end this chapter by saying, well, then let's celebrate the great future that awaits us when we leave this earth and go to heaven. But that isn't how he ends this chapter, not at all. He ends this chapter by telling us to get to work. He ends this chapter by saying, stand your ground now and complete this story. Throw yourself into the work of Jesus. Don't hold back. Go forth and transmit the kingdom of God where you live. Help the kingdom come here on earth right now. And then he concludes by saying, nothing you do 
that advances the kingdom of heaven will be a waste of time. I don't know what happens at the end of life. I don't know what happens at the end of time. I don't have a clear picture. I used to have it all theologically figured out. I don't have that anymore. I just have this internal, vague sense that is intensified that it is good and it is of God and it fulfills the deepest yearnings of our beings. But when all is said and done and time comes to an end, when the trumpet sounds or when the final resurrection occurs for you personally or for the planet collectively, this is clear. Everything that we have done to, the, to advance the kingdom of God will emerge as the centerpiece of the new creation. I had a dear, dear professor when I was in seminary. He kind of adopted me and his wife adopted me and they were in their 70s and they would have me over to the house to do work on their house and then eventually just to be together. And she had a cross stitch in her kitchen and uh, it was these words. It said, only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for God will last. And I was young and full of energy and I thought, oh, how quaint. But as I've gotten older, I've come to think how profound. Only one life we are afforded. There's a limited number of breaths that we will be allowed to take. And so much of what we do with the calories of energy that we take in when we take in our food burns. So much of what we do was urgent but not important. Only one life will soon be passed Only what's done for God will last. Everything that we do to advance the kingdom of God lasts through the transition from now to transcendence. Everything that we do to advance the new creation goes with us as we make this migration. History at that point will revolve around and culminate in what we have done in our role as builders of the kingdom of God. At the first Easter, God launched on an unsuspecting world his redemption initiative, his renewal initiative, his transformation initiative, his healing initiative, the rebirth of the entire world the re-civilization of culture, the changing of the arts, of the sciences, of business, along patterns that mimic the values of the kingdom of God. And then he called you and he called me to be agents of his new initiative. Those who name the name of Jesus, whose lives are now being saved by Jesus Christ, the Easter message is for us one of mission. Love and joy and goodness and kindness are ours to carry onto the earth. Caring for the outcasts, lifting up those who were downtrodden, binding the wounds of those who have been wounded, feeding those whose hearts are hungry, whose souls are hungry, whose bodies are hungry. This is the message of Easter to those who are followers of Jesus Christ. 
Every act of selfless kindness, every loving deed done empowered by the indwelling Spirit of God, every effort to establish justice, every effort to make peace among alienated parties, every time we minister healing to a person, Every time despair is challenged by comfort, every time it is challenged by courage or simply being together, every time encouragement is given to leave behind a lesser story and to embrace a more noble one, every time that happens, Jesus' resurrection is being honored for the purpose of Jesus' resurrection was to establish the kingdom of God on this earth. And every time we respond in obedience to that, God's plan for this created order is being fulfilled. And the resurrected Christ empowers his followers to do this work. We are empowered to be bearers of his love. We are empowered to be soul healers in his name. We are empowered to work for justice and peace on our part of the earth. Throughout history, followers of Jesus have made an outrageous claim. They have claimed that they have met with the living Christ. They have claimed that when they met with the living Christ, they experienced something of his forgiving love. They have claimed that in that experience, something happened to them. That they discovered a power within themselves to put their pasts behind them, and to walk forth into a new beginning, a newness of life. They have reported they've had a capacity to tap in to an interior peace that was previously unavailable. They have reported a capacity to find in their lives purpose and meaning. And now they are out there, these followers of Jesus, these experiencers of the resurrection life, And they populate schools, and they populate businesses, they work in banks, they work in auto shops, they teach, they do business, they nurse in hospitals, and there they are doing good, helping people, being kind. And there they are, empowered by the indwelling life of God, forming the earth into the kind of place God has in mind. And as they do this, they trace their impetus to something that happened to them when they encountered the living Christ. They say that there was something that happened to me that has now set before me this mission and this purpose, and this is our story. We encounter the resurrected Christ and we go forth in the power of that resurrection to establish the kingdom of heaven on this earth where we live. Perhaps you've forgotten this part of our story and so we retell it and we remind ourselves this Easter. Easter is about new life being formed in God's people. Easter is about new life then being offered on the earth. Jesus defeated death by love, and he now calls each of us by name, asking us to do the same, 
to defeat the death fruit that is so present on our earth with the resident empowering love of the Spirit within us. And he invites us to a new life here and now as well as forever. And then he commissions us saying the same thing that he has said to his followers throughout the centuries. Follow me. There's a mission set before us. Follow me. As a follower of Jesus Christ, there are a set of tasks that God has set before you. I don't know what they are, but if you listen to the Spirit of God within, you will discern them. Those challenges will demand your best. There are people to whom God has sent you. There are circumstances into which God has inserted you. There is a life flow that the Holy Spirit has set before your life. And those circumstances, those people, that life flow are changed by your presence because you represent and you carry with you the life of resurrection. And as you step into those circumstances, they are changed by the Spirit of God that indwells you. Sometimes it will be difficult, arduous, challenging, demanding. Sometimes it will be very hard to endure. Sometimes there will be a great deal of doubt that rises up inside of you. But notwithstanding all of those many calamitous circumstances that cause us to look up and say, I can't even think about that. I've got bigger fish to fry. Notwithstanding the insecurities that bedevil each one of us and tell us I could not possibly be the agent of God. Notwithstanding the dirty little secrets that you have that you haven't told anybody that are completely covered under the cross of Jesus and don't matter even a whit. Notwithstanding any one of those things that would thwart your purpose, there is set before you a mission and there is set within you the indwelling Spirit of God as a companion. Some of these life circumstances will demand that you dig deeply to discover the resurrected Christ within your being. Some of these circumstances will be so challenging that you will have to go back and revisit what it is that love and grace and redemption truly mean. You will have to. You will be driven to go back and re-experience the resurrection life of Christ And you will be forced to rediscover the deepest realities. And then when you do, there's a world that is waiting for the gift that you will have to give of your new discovery. When you discover the new dimensions of Christ, the new dimensions of love, the new dimensions of grace and forgiveness, there's a world awaiting the gift of you giving what you have received. And if you forgot this part of our story be reminded this Easter morning. Lord, I pray that you would minister the fire of calling to our hearts. Lord, I ask that you would minister the fire of calling to our hearts. Lord, and as we go forth from this Easter time, this Easter season, this Easter festival, I pray that you would open our eyes to the lonely who need companions. You would open our eyes to the wounded who need healing, 
that you would open our eyes to the spiritually hungry who need meaning, that you would open our eyes to the relationally fractured who need friends. And I pray for this community that you've given me to love, that you've given me to lead. Lord, I pray that we would stand before you, fully embracing the mission that you have set before us, that we would go forth as your people to establish your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. I pray that you would ignite within us resurrection power and that you would empower within us this passion to serve others with the very nature of our God. Lord, I pray for these, your people, on this, your day. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you